Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am in your host, and today I am in New York City, uh, joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. We have David Sanger of the New York Times and sometimes of the Harvard Kennedy School. And in Washington, D.C., we have Laura Rosenberger, who was the chief foreign policy advisor to Hillary Clinton's campaign. And we have Mike Tomaski, who is a columnist for the Daily Beast and sometimes for the New York Times and also um, the editor of the journal Democracy. Uh, and of course, I wanted to bring everybody together to talk a little bit about the election. Uh, and even within hours of beginning to digest the election's result, we also have the uh, uh, requested and accepted resignation of Jeff Sessions uh, and his apparent replacement by uh, uh, Matt Whitaker, the, the uh, chief of staff there at uh, the uh, Department of Justice uh, as acting attorney general, which has real implications for Mueller. Uh, and of course, we want to get to that. But let's start and spend a couple of minutes um, uh, talking about the the election results themselves. And, you know, I think I, I'd like to start from the sort of the grassroots and work our way up. Laura, I know you were out there on the hustings uh, doing some campaigning and um, I'm wondering what your takeaways were, having been campaigning and then seeing the results. So I think my key takeaways, and I did some campaigning in Virginia, I did some campaigning in New Jersey, I did some phone calling into Texas, um, and um, supported a couple of friends running in, in Michigan as well. Um, so I have a little bit of a sense from a couple of different places. Um, I would say the one thing that's really, really, like, true uh, across all of those places is that the voters that I spoke with care about local issues. I mean, in some ways, I think living in Washington, we can all begin to think all the time that it's all about Trump, and it certainly feels like that. Um, but for most voters, um, that's really not the case. And um, in four days in New Jersey, I actually don't think I heard a single voter um, say the word Trump once. Um, so local issues remain, I think, the dominant thing that people care about and are, are motivated by at the, at the voter level. Um, what I would say, though, is, you know, the kinds of people, the incredible energy that I saw in terms of volunteers out canvassing. I mean, I, I like literally I was in New Jersey at a, um, you know, at a, uh, you know, canvas launch site on on Monday and this bus rolls up, organized by the group Swing Left, and um, off the bus comes 
a bunch of Broadway actors from a bunch of different shows who had literally come down to do one Kansas shift before they had to go back and perform on Broadway that evening. Um, so a pretty remarkable um, motivation um, by volunteer energy. And I think a lot of that is about Trump, and it is about the failure of Republicans to stand up and keep him in check. And I think that energy is something um, that we're really going to need to see and captivate and continue as we go forward. Um, okay. Well, so, Mike, you follow these things very closely. Uh, and, of course, there are two narratives the day after. One is the narrative of Donald Trump, which is uh, it was a big success for him. Uh, out, uh, the, the president's party tends to do much worse than he did. Uh, he enumerated during a press conference, uh, I think, eight different Republicans who passed on his help, who then faltered. Um, and so for him, it was, you know, at least he's spinning it as a big success. On the other hand, it kind of sort of turned out exactly like everybody predicted. The Democrats took the House. The Republicans have held on to the Senate. At the end of the day, they might have picked up a vote or two in the Senate. They may not. Um, uh, but it's a big change to have the Democrats in charge of the House and Nancy Pelosi as the speaker presumptive. And Nancy Pelosi's strategy was exactly what Laura was talking about, which was keep it local, don't make it about Trump, focus on issues people care about. And that seems to have worked pretty well. Yeah, um, <clears throat> a shocker here. Uh, what Trump said isn't true. Uh, the average uh, loss for an incumbent president in his first midterm, two years into his term, <clears throat> going back to Jimmy Carter's time, let's say, uh, is uh, 26, 27, something like that. So this was more than that, not a whole lot more than that. We don't know the exact final tally yet, but it's into the 30s. So it's a bit worse. He did somewhat worse than presidents usually do in their first reelection. Um, <clears throat> there are things for the Republicans to say, well, we came out of this all right. Uh, obviously, the Senate is, is the main thing there. The Senate was always going to be really tough for Democrats. I remember, David, uh, of just a couple of days after the 2016 election, uh, being as depressed as I was and going and looking at the 2018 Senate map, uh, to see what was in store for us the next time and seeing it and going, oh, my gosh, this is, <laughs> this is even worse. 26 Democrats defended their seats uh, yesterday and only nine Republicans. Uh, and, of course, uh, as your listeners may know, 10 of those Democrats were, were in states that Trump won. Uh, so that was always going to be hard. Uh, nonetheless, the, the result is disappointing for the Democrats. They might have hoped to have hold, held a couple more of those seats. It, it looks like the Republicans are going to have 53 or 54 senators now. Uh, I would also say that uh, it, it was a little disappointment for the Democrats that not one of their big sort of rock star candidacies came through. Stacey Abrams, although she she will be in a runoff maybe. Uh, and Andrew Gillum and Beto O'Rourke. But, you know, they won the House. They won seven governorships. They had a really good night. Winning the House is what they were supposed to do, and that's what they did. And it's yeah, big, and winning, big the governor, winning the governorships uh, and some control of some state legislatures clearly has some big implications when it comes to 2020, reapportionment, et cetera. David, you watched this thing uh, I, I recall that we spent part of 2016's election 
uh, at our uh, victory party event at the uh, comedy cellar. And, you know, it turned really unfunny really quickly in 2016. Last night, you couldn't join us, but we did one again at the comedy cellar. Uh, and just as we ended, they announced that control had gone to the Democrats and some, you know, some of the villains like Chris Kobach had had lost. Uh, and it, so it was a much more festive air, except for the fact that you weren't there. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm, I'm glad that the, the, the humor this time didn't uh, uh, get stepped on uh, uh, quite as much. But, uh, you know, I'm in, in agreement uh, that this was not the great blue wave. It was more like a blue rising tide or blue ripple, right? That um, there wasn't an enormous amount of um, enthusiasm uh, for some of the big, biggest of the Democratic names. But I thought what was two things sort of jumped out at me the most. First of all, the fact that the Republicans gained ground in the Senate tells you that this uh, rural versus cities split that we've seen in the country all along, if anything, has gotten worse, right? And that explains why the Senate goes more into uh, Republican control here, even while the House flips. The second was that I I agree completely with Laura that people look at these issues um, more locally, but I find it interesting that when you talk to people out on the campaign trail, and I only had a chance to do a bit of that. Um, you heard about the tax cut a fair bit, and from people who did not believe that it was necessarily helping them and was helping uh, the wealthy more. You heard a lot about medical care, and you heard very little about Mueller and very little about Russia. And uh, I just noticed, you know, because we're all obsessed with that issue, of course, in Washington. Certainly in the, in the Times Washington Bureau, we spend a lot of time on it. I spent a lot of time on the, the uh, activities of the Russians um, in a book this year. And as I've been out talking to people about it, I've barely been asked about the Russia part. You hear about a lot of other, other issues raising it, but not that. And what does that tell you? It tells you that as you head toward the uh, presidential uh, election, which, of course, the focus is going to turn to by about tomorrow morning. Um, you have to wonder, unless Mueller has, you know, truly smoking gun stuff, whether people have pretty well tuned out the um, the investigation at this point, unless they hear something so truly shocking that it, it ends up tying uh, the president or people immediately around him to, uh, to the Russian activity. Well, I don't think we're going to wait till tomorrow morning to turn to the presidential election, because honestly, the, the minute the clock ticks past midnight, uh, we were on to that. One of the things that I think came out of this election that was most interesting um, and, and relevant, not just to the presidential election and beyond, Laura, is that... Uh, uh, there's this whole new crop of, 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 of politicians more broadly, but of Democrats, young Democrats, some of them were your colleagues in the Obama administration, women, over 100 women in the House, the highest number that there ever was, uh, and that we may look back at this election not so much in terms of the results that everybody's talking of, 
But at the beginning of a changing of the guard in American politics, from the baby boomers to millennials to a younger generation, et cetera. And I know some of the people you are supporting would fall under that category. So maybe maybe you would talk about that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, if we take one step back and think about the freshman class, um, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but when the Tea Party wave um, came into the House, you had a lot of younger, um, sort of energetic Republican candidates um, who helped bring that generational change on that side. Um, I think that may be what we are seeing here now um, and what happened last night. And, and I would argue that it's not even just what happened last night. It's, it's all the many candidates who stepped up and ran and lost in primaries who may not have won last night, but came out so, so, so close giving, you know, forcing, um, the GOP to spend in districts that they haven't had to spend in, in decades to defend those seats. Um, you know, so I think there is a, an enormous amount of energy that is politically engaged um, at this sort of new generational level. I mean, certainly the folks who, you know, my friends who were um, elected last night and one of whose seat is still too close to call, um, these are people who um, are dedicated career public servants in most cases. Um, you know, they uh, sought up to, you know, they, they um, signed up to serve their country um, in one way or another. Um, and, and then, um, and that was in the, you know, in the government and, and policy space. And then when their country had needs for them to serve in a different way, they signed up and said, you know, I will run. Um, that gives me hope for the future of American democracy because more participation is what we need, not less. Um, and then, you know, on the question of, of the sort of nature of the candidates themselves, too, I mean, as you noted, this will be the biggest class of women, um, the biggest class of women that, that we have, have ever seen in the House of Representatives. Um, at the moment, it stands at 123 women, I believe. Now, that's fabulous, except when we remember that there's 435 members of the House, so we're still like, you know, not even close to 50 percent. But, hey, I'll take it, um, you know. We, um, you know, the, the Senate is, is a little, is, you know, basically um, going to stay about where it's been. Um, but I think that, um, you know, that energy is really important. The, the one thing I would say, well, two, two other things. One is that, you know, we saw um, most of the people that I was out, you know, campaigning with as I've been out on the trail have been women. I mean, women who are knocking doors. I was in carloads of women this weekend. Um, as everybody was just getting out there. That kind of political engagement is enormous. Um, and, and then the last point I would make um, is one slightly less optimistic note, which is that um, my fellow white women um, still are letting um, the rest of us down. <laughs> um, you know, in, in one of the big stories in 2015 was how white women had really actually, you know, broken for Trump. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about whether white women, especially sort of white college-educated women, were going to break the other way this time. And the exit numbers right now show it coming out just about even 49-49 Democrat-Republican in terms of support for the House races. Um, a couple of key governors and Senate races, actually white women, um, went for the, the Republican candidate, in some cases very racist, misogynistic candidates. Um, so I think it's also important to unpack that it's not just gender here. There's a lot of intersectional dynamics that are happening. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if the 
slight erosion of support among white college-educated women continues in the Trump era, or if that is really not going to be a factor, and it's going to be our sisters of color and our brothers of color as well who help um, shift the, this tide as we see continued demographic change in this country. Well, you know, we still can hang on to hope, uh, uh, Laura, and uh, while I'm not asking you to pick sides um, at, at just this moment, uh, I personally uh, am very much hopeful that uh, in 2020, which is the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote, uh, we'll finally have a woman elected president of the United States. And who knows, perhaps that may even be a woman of color. Um, uh, Mike, you've been doing some interesting columns for the New York Times. I was very struck by the one you did on Sunday, um, which pertained at, at its core uh, to the message going forward. Uh, before we went on the air, you said you have another one coming uh, for the Times. What's, what's that focused on? They told me they were going to post it this afternoon, this afternoon being Tuesday or Wednesday, excuse me, as we speak. Um, uh, it's about the the Senate and the quandary the Democrats face in the Senate, uh, <clears throat> losing, as I said, a, a couple more seats than they uh, were kind of counting on losing and uh, now facing a situation where they may not have a majority in the Senate for quite some time. Um, uh, again, uh, just as I had in 2016, I looked this morning at the 2020 map, and it's on paper. It's a little bit friendlier for the Democrats uh, because the Republicans now have will have more seats to defend in 2020, uh, which makes sense if you think about it, right? Because it was 2014 when the Republicans recaptured control uh, or added to their Senate majority. Uh, and um, and elected a, a bunch of first timers, uh, and so those people are are now defending their seats for the first time. So Republicans have 21 incumbencies, uh, and Democrats only 12. Uh, so that sounds good from a Democratic perspective, but when you look at the 21 states, there really aren't very many where the Democrats have a realistic chance uh, to win. Susan Collins in Maine is their best shot. Uh, and then there's some others, uh, Iowa, uh, maybe North Carolina, but you know, you start talking about states like North Carolina, uh, Colorado's in there as well. You're talking about states that they could win, but they could lose. Uh, and, uh, they're going to, uh, be heading into that election with a big deficit anyway. So, um, we may be looking at a situation where even if the Democrats control the house and uh, a Democrat wins the White House. Uh, there's just no way they can take the Senate, uh, which means there's no way that, that they can pass legislation, and which may mean there's no way they can uh, put somebody on the Supreme Court or maybe even other federal judgeships. Uh, <clears throat> so this is a problem that the Democrats really have to apply themselves to, and it's a very hard task and a tall order but they have to find candidates who, in states like Colorado, Iowa, and North Carolina, <clears throat> can both uh, rouse the base and, um, and reach out to, to new voters and, uh, and do something to break this pattern that we see in Senate races time and time again uh, when the map comes up on TV on election night where it's blue dots 
surrounded by oceans of red. Well, I think that's a good point and a very thoughtful look forward. So we look forward a little bit in terms of the rising generation. We look forward a little bit in terms of what's going on in the Senate. Uh, you know, David, you said, you know, we weren't going to immediately skip forward to the presidential election. There was one other thing that we thought we would skip forward to, and that pertained to your prior comment also, which had to do with Mueller, which is that people are going to start leaving the Trump administration. And almost immediately, Jeff Sessions got fired. Uh, and the effective consequence of that is that Jeff Sessions is out. Whitaker is in as acting attorney general, whether he is for a short time or a long time. It changes something really fundamental, which is until recently, the, until now, the, the uh, deputy attorney general has been the one overseeing uh, the Mueller investigation because the attorney general recused himself. Well, this attorney general not only does not have to, or acting attorney general, not only does not have to recuse himself, but he's already written for CNN, for example, that uh, Mueller has overstepped his bounds. And so this has got to be very chilling in terms of the immediate future of the Mueller investigation. I'm wondering how you see the next couple months playing out prior to a Democratic Congress getting in and perhaps... Uh, uh, able to make a difference through uh, the chairing committees, et cetera, in the House. Well, David, let's start with how the next couple of days and weeks might uh, might play out. So right now, Rod Rosenstein is still overseeing the Mueller investigation. Mueller does not have the authority to decide what happens with his report when it gets done. He hands it to Rosenstein or maybe to Whitaker if Whitaker takes those powers back since he wouldn't have to recuse himself, presumably, and they're supposed to make the decision, does it become public? I have to think the pressure to make it public will be huge. Um, does it get referred for criminal uh, referral? Does it get referred to Congress for either impeachment, information, uh, sharing with the intelligence committees, both um, uh, the House, which will now go over to Democratic control, that committee, go to the Senate one, which will remain uh, under uh, Chairman Burr and Republican uh, control. So the fate of the Mueller report really sits on the leadership of uh, the Justice Department in the next uh, in the next few days and weeks. Now Mueller presumably has been hanging back some. We're all guessing this because of the Justice Department rule that you don't take any activity that could, action that could affect an oncoming election. So if he's got something to go uh, release, everybody's anticipating it may be in the next few days, or the next few weeks. We don't know for a fact that he's ready yet. Uh, and if we learn one thing about Mueller, he does things on his own schedule. Uh, but it will be interesting to see, first, whether Rod Rosenstein stays. Second, even if he stays, do his powers then go to the new acting attorney general? That acting attorney general, as you pointed out, has suggested that Mueller has overstepped his bounds. So the question is, does he do, take any kind of step to limit the investigation? And then you saw the president at his press conference blow up today about the idea that the Democrats could use their new majority to go further investigations uh, of him and said he would come after them if he did. He didn't specify um, how. But that's the drama that's going to play out now. Democrats with subpoena power and presumably Democrats who will get a hold of the Mueller report one way or another. 
Well, they'll get a hold of it if the Justice Department gives them it. Uh, and the Justice Department might get into an extended court battle over that. It's not impossible, Laura, that we could see the next couple of years with a much more fractious, divided, unconstructive debate in Washington. Um, and this Mueller thing could be, um, you know, a spark uh, which ignites this sort of next period of conflagration. And I'm, you know, I'm wondering, you know, how how seriously do you think Democrats will view this? Do you what do you think they would do if 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 Mueller got either forced out or sort of um, sat on? Well, I'm not going to get into the speculative game of what they will do, um, but I'll talk about what I think um, you know should happen. And let me just take one step back, which is. To reflect on David's comments about, you know, voters not caring so much about Mueller and, and Russia and all of that. And I think that on the one hand, that's true, but I think it doesn't mean that these things aren't important. And I think there's two different dynamics to what we're seeing play out right now. And, and it's sort of um, embedded in your question as well. One is what's good for the country and one is what's good for politics. One is what's good for our security and one is what's good for one party um, winning um, races in the near term. Um, and in my view, the Republican Party has continually made decisions over the past several years that advocate responsibility for country and security and that are strictly in furtherance of gaining power for themselves. And I believe that the reason why Mueller and understanding what Russia has and is doing, has been and is doing, um, and all these things are important, not because voters care about them or because it's good politics, but because our country is under attack, our country's democratic institutions are eroding from within, and it is incredibly important that we, in as the party, I believe, um, that is deeply patriotic, that cares about our security, that cares about our democracy, that we ensure that there are investigations that are done in a, in a way that it's fair, um, that understands um, the true dynamics of what's at play that are um, in furtherance of, of uh, strengthening our democratic institutions um, and that are holding accountable those um, who are trying to um, undermine those institutions, whether those are um, within the U.S. Um, or whether those are foreign powers. Um, so I think that the Mueller investigation is incredibly important in that sense um, as are um, some of the broader questions that I think need to be examined. Now, you know, in terms of what that means for Democrats' next moves, um, I think it's really important to put it in that context, right? I mean, this is about threats to our country. We've already seen from the indictments that Mueller um, has, has um, you know, come down with, um, as well as some of the other charges that the Department of Justice has brought, um, you know, how um, this threat is, is, uh, ongoing to our country um, in terms of the, the Russian activity. Um, and of course, the big outstanding question um, from all of the congressional investigations to date, including the Sissy investigation, which has been, in fact, a real example of bipartisanship, is, um, is in fact, um, you know, what, what, the, what the connection is between the 
Trump campaign, Trump himself and and the Russians. But the last thing I would say in terms of what I think the Democrats should do on this, um, and it, it speaks to that last point, um, is that I think it's incredibly important for Democrats to not politicize this. Um, and I know that that probably sounds ridiculous, um, but I think that as we, if we make this into a partisan issue, we lose. Democracy loses and everybody loses because the voters also don't care about it. Um, we have to stay bipartisan on this. Um, that's hard because Republicans have not been super willing partners on that front, um, but there are a few of them. And I think the more that we can continue to ensure that the frame here is about the security of the country, the integrity of our democracy, and not about partisan politics, the better off we're going to be. Well, that's um, a great kind of should do. But Mike... <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure, Mike, that that's where we're going to end up. For example, you know, uh, if we weren't going to make this into a partisan battle over Mueller, you might just let the deputy attorney general take over as attorney general. Um, uh, the only reason not to have the deputy attorney general take over um, is because you don't like the way that he's running the Mueller probe. Uh, and it looks you know, it could be that what we're gearing up for here at these moments is a lot of conflict, which, by the way, doesn't, you know, sort of bode very well for getting anything else done. And I'm wondering, you know, as an experienced observer of this, it's also going to, by the way, throw up a bunch of, of, of House committee chairmen and House committee members as the frontline stars, potentially, of Democratic Party for the next year. So I'm wondering what you think the consequences of this move will be in, in, a, in a realistic political sense. Uh, it's very difficult to game out, and it's also a little bit alarming to game out because, you know, we're – this could set off a series of events that, that lead to, you know, getting into the meat of the constitutional crisis that – that many people have been warning about and talking about and saying was approaching or saying was here uh, <clears throat> for some portion of the last two years. But if uh, Mr. Whitaker, the acting AG, were to fire Rod Rosenstein and fire Robert Mueller, then uh, we'll, be, we'll be in the thick of that constitutional crisis. Now, the Democrats once they have the majority, we'll be able to respond. Now, what what happens if it happens between now and January 3rd when they're all sworn in? I don't know, actually. Maybe somebody else on this panel does. I don't. Um, if, this, if all this happens after January 3rd, the Democrats have some options. Uh, they could essentially, I think, from what I know, uh, uh, essentially uh, fund the Mueller probe. Out of, out of the House of Representatives and move it to the House of Representatives in some way, shape, or form. Um, so <clears throat> they will have options then. You're absolutely right that Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler in particular, Schiff on intelligence most of all and Nadler on judiciary, uh, <clears throat> will become extremely important figures in this drama. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a frightening thing to... Um, to contemplate, uh, but uh, obviously it's really staring us in the face now uh, that Sessions is going to be gone, and uh, and Whitaker is a person who has spoken 
uh, you know, cavalierly about, uh, spoken negatively about about Mueller and about the probe. Let's put it that way. Before he joined Sessions' staff, uh, he went on TV and and said uh, the probe needs to be reined in and things like that. There is no scenario, David, and this will be the last word because we're trying to keep this uh, crisp here today, but there is no scenario in which I think this can actually be good for the rule of law. Because as we said, the only reason for them to do this is to take control of the Mueller probe away from Rosenstein effectively, or at least to add another voice into it. Today, the president of the United States referred to it as an illegal probe, the witch hunt, the conflicts of everybody involved in the probe. Uh, these are all sort of lines that you know uh, he could push or Whitaker could push um, to compromise or or the probe. Uh, we don't know what kind of po- uh, you know sort of poison pills uh, that you know may have been built into this whole thing by Mueller, where things passed to the SDNY or 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 you know, in six, seven, eight weeks, the the House Democrats can, you know, reinvigorate Mueller or 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 what? But I is there a scenario where this actually involves the Mueller probe continuing as it has? Well, you know, the best scenario would be that everybody considers it too radioactive for anybody to interfere with Mueller. Um, clearly, that's not the president's hope here, and you could hear that in his statements um, today. Uh, the question is, how much is he willing to go risk? Uh, he's got a Democratic, um, uh, now to deal with a Democratic House. He's probably betting that the Democrats think it would not be to their advantage in 2020 to impeach him, that uh, that would you know, result in either even further division. They, they might not come out on top of that just as they didn't uh, come off completely cleanly in the, in the Kavanaugh hearings. So um, my guess is the president's a little emboldened by um, this, uh, this election result. Not that he didn't lose a lot. He did. Uh, but that, you know, he operates best when he's got a clear enemy. And now he can go out and blame everything that is going wrong in the world on a Nancy Pelosi-led uh, house. And he will. That's going to be his strategy for the next two years. And everything we know about Donald Trump is he operates as his most efficient when he can identify a single clear evildoer in his mind. And many of his followers will sign on to that. Um, During the campaign, you know, it was the caravan and the Democrats who wanted to open the borders, even if that sounded to all of us is not very much like what the Democrats are thinking of. And he's going to look for similarly clear storylines through his opposition with the Democratic House. Yeah. In fact, he said as much. He said, I will blame them. I mean, he just sort of offered this kind of sweeping declaration. Um, And he will. And and, and, the great thing about Donald Trump is what you see is what you get. You know, he doesn't have it very well. He's got no filter. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly right. I think Democrats had a pretty good day yesterday. You could see it in the president's face. Uh, But if you look forward during the next two years, what this election bodes is more division, uh, the Sessions decision, uh, and the Whitaker replacement 
are only a sign that we, we ain't seen nothing yet. And we may look at the next several months or the next couple of years as the really difficult period of the Trump administration. Uh, fortunately, that's why we're here and we will have more conversations like this one. We're very lucky today to have been joined by Laura Rosenberger, um, uh, by Mike Tomaski, and go look for his piece in the New York Times and his stuff at the Daily Beast, by David Sanger, who you know you can find uh, on a daily basis in the New York Times. And uh, very often here, as, as soon as he gets done with his class, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully see him a lot more often on Deep State Radio. Uh, and for those of you looking for, you know, additional content tomorrow, we'll do a special with uh, Rosa Brooks and uh, with uh, Katie Fang, a former prosecutor, uh, uh, on the implications of this move with Sessions. Uh, we've got some other interesting interviews coming up, including Jonathan Greenblatt, who's the head of the Anti-Defamation League, uh, and great content all the time. So go to deepstateradionetwork.com. Enjoy the content, and then support us, become a member, and help us do more and more of this. Uh, help us to grow um, as you have been. Um, and uh, we'll be back very soon uh, to all of you out there in uh, uh, deep state land. Uh, thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.